0: On today's episode of the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast, we're thrilled to have Steph Smith with us, a Queen's grad in chemical engineering from 2015. Steph is a marketer, a writer, a podcaster whose work in consulting and with companies you may have heard of like The Hustle and HubSpot, and is currently a podcast host at Andreessen Horowitz. She's also the author of a book doing content right, and has had multiple projects reach number one on product hunt. So join us as we dive into her journey from Queen's University to consulting to becoming a content creator. Steph, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us.
1: It's great to be here and this is such a throwback but it's also making me feel so old because uh, it's been a while since I graduated.
0: Well, let's, let's jump into it. And uh, in our preamble with some, some show notes going back and forth by email, What struck me, Steph, I think it'd be of interest to our listeners is just how much you've been the CEO of your own career. So to start off with, could you walk us through how you go from graduating from Queens in chemical engineering to consulting to becoming a creator to now being a podcast host at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the preeminent Silicon Valley uh, venture capital firms?
1: sure so i mean i love your framing this idea of being the ceo really directing your life and not just letting perhaps the degree that you happen to take or even the first job that you took out of school being the definitive answer to what you're going to do for you know what can be decades to come and so you know what's funny in, in reflecting on the many different paths i have taken since is that there were a few instances while at Queen's and also right after Queen's that really influenced that. So I'll just share two of them. The first was um, I happened to go on exchange in third year while I was at Queen's. But I was in engineering, as you said, and fewer engineering students, at least when I was there, happened to go on exchange. That was really a a function of being able to find the right courses at the time so that you could still graduate on time. Um, But I remember not really hearing much about it but stumbling upon, I think, someone a year older than me who happened to go to Lund, which is where I went on exchange. And I had actually missed the deadline um, for applying to exchange. And I can't remember who I reached out to, um, but I sent them an email and I was just like, I'm so sorry. I've totally missed the deadline. I didn't know we could do this. Is there any chance I can still participate? And that person very kindly offered me the the chance to still go on exchange and I think that was one of those cases where you know when you're young you don't realize that like the world isn't binary like you can ask for your chance at something you can push for something that um, maybe you haven't heard of or you didn't even know is possible and that sounds really simple but exchange for me ended up being this this event you could say this like before and after where after I realized oh wow this was like a whole new world that I wasn't exposed to before, and all it took to be exposed to it was asking. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing, which ties directly into exchange, was after I graduated, you know, you have that four month period, some people jump right into work. I happen to have a job set up in September. So I had four months and I went traveling. A lot of people do this. I went to Southeast Asia. I went to Australia. I went to Europe. I literally did a whole world adventure because I had this idea in my head that after that four month adventure, my life was set for me, as in I'd go into consulting and I'd be doing that for decades to come. And I would max have two weeks off a year um, to go and adventure and and play. And I remember being in a hostel, actually, at the end of that trip, talking to the friend who I was traveling with, and we were just so sad about that concept. We were just like, oh, I guess I guess what we think of life today as we know it is over. Um, And I'm mentioning these two cases, the exchange and then that that realization. Because that was so that second realization was so far from the truth, but it did guide me towards over the next year trying to find a remote job. And through that exercise, I just kind of realized that I actually am in control. So coming back to your idea of being the CEO of your own career, I slowly but surely started you know, taking back the reins. And I was like, oh, no, I actually don't have to just succumb to 40 years in consulting for the rest of my life, I can actually travel and work, which is what I wanted to do. I can work remotely and have flexible hours. I can you know, go from consulting into technology. I can get a job on a growth team, even though that's not my expertise per se. Um, I'm OK to give up engineering, you know, at least for the time being, or maybe forever, even though all my classmates are, you know, diving headfirst into that. And so coming back to to answering your question, I think over time I've built up the reps where I have, as I mentioned before, taken back the reins and pushed for things that I wanted and taken chances. And I've been rewarded for that over time. And then that has you know, naturally led me to. Experiences I never would have imagined, like being, you know, part of Andreessen and Horowitz as their podcast host, would have never guessed that at Queens back in the day.
0: It's a very interesting career direct trajectory, for sure, and I think a good message because there is some trepidation that as students are graduating, and just as you've said, oh, I've locked myself into this career path forever. Is this something I'm truly passionate about? Is this something I want to picture myself doing for the next thirty-five years? Doesn't necessarily have to be the case, and I think is less so as people move forward. And Mm -hmm. so Steph, I know in in your various postings online, you've talked about how you started dabbling in side projects and you've mentioned how you started looking for remote work, but talk to us about some of the side projects you did and how those start shape some of the skill sets that moved you down the path from consultant to marketer and creator and some of the high growth companies you've worked with
1: Yeah. And and just a quick note on this idea of experimentation and to your point, many of the projects I did ended up not just benefiting me through their existence, but through the path and in gaining skills to be able to create them. Um, And along that thread, over the last few years, as I've pursued these different side projects or jobs that I never expected to have, they've opened new doors where I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that it was so important to learn to code. Let me go do this once I've done this. Oh, now there's these new doors that open up. And so coming back to your question about what skills they've unlocked, I'll just quickly mention a few of the side projects. You mentioned some at the, at the outset, but I wrote a book, which I never expected to do about content. I at one point decided that I just needed to learn to code. And that came from living in Bali for a while. And around that time, in Canggu specifically, there was a large swath, or you could say, cohort of indie makers. Um, These are people who would create, you could say, projects, products, or ultimately companies that made money online um, through code, mostly. And these people would just run everything themselves I think the most well-known person in this space is someone named Peter levels who is truly an independent entrepreneur he has several companies he's created and he runs all of it by himself with the exception of a few part-time contractors um, so I was really inspired at this time to be like wow again like this world exists that I didn't know about certainly in college and even for years after where I can kind of like Determine my own destiny, but also run it. I can run these companies all by myself. I can make all these decisions. I don't have to lead, you know, a big team of 20 people. Which, by the way, shortly after uh, uh, leaving Queens, I happened to be running a team of 20 people. I think at the age of 23. So I got that experience pretty early on, and oh. you know, under the the with the lens of trying and experimenting, I think I was very lucky to learn that that was actually not something that I, I loved doing. Anyway, so I had learned to or I'd been exposed to all these amazing people. And I decided in order for me to be able to do some of uh, the things that they're doing, I needed to learn to code. Um, so that's one example of where I went. I forged down that path. I spent the next nine months or so where my primary goal, I was still working full time, but outside of that job was to learn to code. And every day I would mark down, did I actually spend time on this as in learning to code or not? I took this full stack Udemy course. And then at the end of that course, as part of the nine months, it was um, my job to be like, okay, I'm not just going to forget this stuff. I'm just going to create as many side projects, whether they're meaningful or not, whether I think they'll make money or not. I'm just going to cement this knowledge. And those were many of the projects that ended up you know, going to number one on product hunt. There was one called Unoya, which was this fun directory of untranslatable words. Um, there was another few that, again, they were not really products or companies. They were just things that I wanted to exist in the world. Um, and then years later, I ended up writing a book. But all of that is to say that, you know, now some of those projects have made um, some some money, like the book has done, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth in sales. But I think the biggest value that came out of all of those projects was not any sort of money. It was, to your point, the skills were now. I've never felt more financially stable, not because of the, you know, the actual financial picture that I have, but because now I actually feel like I have this toolkit of skills, whether it's writing, whether it's coding, whether it's design, marketing that now I feel like even if any job was stripped from me or all my side projects were taken away, I would still be able to create something with my own bare hands and brain from scratch. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I do think those those side projects, um, if anything, I I wish I pursued earlier, like when I was a student at Queen's.
0: Absolutely answers the question for sure you know as much as students lament the idea of writing term papers and things like that they are important skills and i know you've got a podcast with your partner called i'll just say s you don't they don't teach you in school <laughs> where i assume there's a bunch of things that are soft skills that you know if you look at a normal distribution and if, if you're writing and you can communicate a little bit farther to the left on that normal distribution you're probably going to have things open up and in the world of business whether you're entrepreneurial uh, working as a creator or working at a big company being being a savvy, effective communicator, being able to present well, is an important skill that you can translate into many different areas. You've talked about some of the things you probably learned at Queens, like design thinking and uh, the engineering mm-hmm. concepts and whatnot. But taking those frameworks, the next step, uh, really, is helpful. And I'm assuming in pursuing those side projects, uh, you know, strike me, you strike me as sort of a curious person, where you just said, well, this looks like an interesting need. Let's see if I can. Spin up a little widget or a project online that will answer this question. These don't have to be grand projects necessarily, yeah. right? They can be little tiny bits that, even you know, I guess Paul Graham from Y Combinator says initially, in the startup world at least, you need to do things that don't scale. So I don't think exactly students thinking of graduating or thinking about side hustles really need to say, "I need to invent the next Facebook." Now it can be pretty niche and pretty small, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that's actually so important because. Back when I was at Queens, um, I did have a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit. I remember talking to this friend of mine, Eric, and we were both like, you know, we'd follow Y Combinator, we'd follow people like Paul Graham, and we were like, we need to come up with our next startup idea. And we'd literally sit down and we'd, you know, send each other three startups idea startup ideas every day. Um, but they were so far removed from what we were actually interested in because we were trying to think from the lens of what startups we had seen and we what we thought the market wanted instead of what truly we were curious about. And I think, you know, this actually relates to even how much of what students learn in the classroom is, to your point, extremely valuable. But if they can't tie that back to something that they're curious and excited about, that's when that knowledge becomes really, really transient, even if it's important. And just to give an example of this, I did take coding classes at Queen's and I did learn that material material, not to the extent that I know now, but, you know, I would learn MATLAB and I would, you know, get good grades in that course. But because at the time I couldn't tie it back to something that I was excited to build, even if it was a silly website of untranslatable words, then again, that knowledge became really, really transient. And also the process of learning that knowledge became all the more grueling and unexciting i'll give one other example of this not from queens but my least favorite course in high school and really throughout my whole education experience was english class and i think many people resonate with that where they find writing truly exhausting and that's mostly because i think a lot of people are taught how to write and there's merit to that they're taught how to write an essay for example in high school and how it has to have three key points and they're really taught more about structure than getting a point across and again getting a point across that they're excited to say Um, and so what's been fascinating for me since I've left school is I now love writing Um, I write truly for fun and that's actually you could say a lot of people come to me Because of my writing, Um, that was how I kind of initially built my my following of sorts. And it's been amazing to see that transition in my own brain. Um, And I think that applies to many skills outside of writing is just, again, asking the questions, A, how do I learn this in a way where it relates to my life or my curiosities so that I actually want to engage? Mm -hmm. Um, And then as you start doing that, B, you end up you end up actually pursuing it in a way that's much, much more long-term because you want to revisit it. It's helping you facilitate a goal. And over time, all of a sudden, you, like me, become someone that actually considers himself a writer who used to hate writing back in the day.
0: Yeah, and effective writing can be so important. And you, you started to touch on another point I'd love to chat with you about, Steph, and that is the paradigm in school, university, college, whatever it is, students are evaluated based on the curriculum, the course materials, and that's typically examinations where you're asked a question and you give the right answer and you get a grade. When mm-hmm. you move into the real world, and if you're interested in trying to uh, either build an audience or look to decide, say you worked at a big multinational software company to see if this, uh, this feature should be developed. Um, in, the, in, the, in the world past post-secondary education, it's actually almost not as much about what the answers are. It's asking the right question. And so can you talk to us about how uh, you've used, using the the tools and the data that's online to help in your career? And I guess I'm thinking here, your time at The Hustle and and other places where uh, newsletters really need to have uh, subject matter that audiences are interested in engaging in so that while you're honing the writing craft and the skills you're actually writing and delivering content that people will find interesting and engaging.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing you touched on there is that in many cases, once you leave school, there is not a right answer. And using newsletters as an example of that, um, there are, I don't know if it's thousands or millions of newsletters out there. Um, There are many that are successful, there are even more that are unsuccessful, Um, and so, coming to this idea of there is not a right answer. There are many wrong answers and there are many right answers versus in school, you often are looking for a correct answer. Um, And also, by the way, that's why I think I I had a really great short-term memory, so I think I excelled in school, but many people don't have that same brain Um, architecture, you could say. Um, But what's exciting is that once you leave school, it's much more about problem solving. It's much more about, as you're saying, not answering the right questions. It's about asking the right questions. Um, And my time at The Hustle, I was building a product called Trends. um, And it was all about finding trends, either as they're in their early stages or really before people have heard of them. And so that could be anything from looking at data sources like Google Trends, um, where you can just see what are people searching for. Because Google Trends, or really any Google search data, is such a unique data source where billions of people are querying every day. And the equivalent of a query, what you type into Google, is basically telling Google what you care about, what you want in life, the questions that you're asking. And if you aggregate that en masse, you can learn a lot about the world. Let me give you an example. When I was looking for remote work back in the day, I happened to look it up in Google Trends um, and what you could see, and you can still see this, by the way, in the archive, of course, because it doesn't change, is you could see remote work peaking uh, at the end of every year, right as people were writing New New Year's resolutions, um, you could see them searching for remote jobs. You could see as they were re-querying their own life and thinking through, you know, what do I want? Do I want more flexibility? Do I want to be able to travel? Do I? Do I want something new in my life? Remote work was coming up. And so, again, as you're looking through data or as you're almost like querying your own life, you can abstract that to other data and see, is this something is this a wider trend? Um, And that was the kind of work that we were doing. We would kind of we would do anything from looking up the skincare ingredients that were trending, you know, in on subreddits um, to finding different products like hard kombucha that was trending only in California and maybe a little bit in Colorado, but nowhere else across the country and certainly nowhere else outside of the United States. And so those were the interesting things that we were tracking in trends. And again, it didn't have to just be consumer products. It was really just about finding the sentiment that was happening across the world um, and and kind of sharing that with people before um, before they had heard of it or before the masses had heard of it. And so I would encourage people, you know, that one of the most interesting things about today, 2023, or really the last few years, is we do have these tools, whether it's Google Trends, Hrefs um, is another great tool. Subreddit Stats is another great tool. Jungle Scout, you can see different Amazon um, buying trends. And you can just get curious about the data that exists. Like we, 10 years ago, this data did not exist. You could not see what people were buying or searching or what topics communities we're talking about and so I would encourage people to you know if we extrapolate past the like super obvious things that you know about like AI is a huge topic right now that's in the news do your own digging right play around with these tools and see what pops up and see what garners your interest um, and I think that's again like we're at actually a very unique inflection point where the data exists but also at an inflection point where many people still do not Play with the data, or understand it, or query it. Get curious about it.
0: So you can find that granularity as as if you're in, if you're interested in becoming a content creator, and starting to build your social media followings and whatnot. Would would be wise to pay attention to those trends that may help you get connected with those. I don't know what would you call them, early adopters, but anyways, an, an audience that's looking for that content and searching out answers to those questions or opinions and subreddits or uh, some of the other resources you mentioned
1: yeah and just on that note one of the things that's so important about some of these tools is that they're not just they're not just tracking uh what people happen or how should i say this they're not just tracking new ideas and surfacing them to you they are tracking vetted new ideas and by vetted i mean these tools are surfacing the most upvoted posts on subreddit for example they're surfacing the most popular products you've never heard of but that are doing millions of dollars on Amazon each month right so I think there's there's that extra layer of you can try to get fidelity by talking to your friends or seeing what you know what ads are running on the TV shows that you watch, um, but that's not vetted data. That just happens to be the data that reaches you at a given time. But today we actually have tools that we can see what are people, what are the things that people are searching for the most in this week. What are the what are the products that are surprisingly big that are doing again much more revenue than you would expect? What niche communities are actually not that niche? What are these communities on subreddit? or what subreddits actually have millions of people interacting every single day on them that you would have thought was a tiny community and then using these tools you can actually see what are the things that those people care about the most what was the most upvoted post of the week of the year etc and so again there's there's this i think overlooked or underappreciated nature of like this is vetted information in fact there are people you know you're talking about newsletters there are people who build entire followings on Twitter, for example, who will just use a tool like subreddit stats to find something that is already trending on Reddit, so it's already vetted, and then they'll just post it on Twitter, and they know it'll do well because they already know thousands or millions of people have said, this is interesting, um, and they can even look in the comments of those posts and say, hey, this is what people are asking for. This, These are the the aspects of this original post that people find most interesting so I think that's actually it sounds simplistic but it's you know people say that like there's opportunity everywhere but it's not evenly distributed in this case it is actually evenly distributed because everyone has access to these tools most people just don't know how to use them or they just don't think to use them
0: yeah sort of ironically back to the earlier part of our conversation the answers are actually out there (laughs) if you you take the time to care to look and Yeah, a conversation with your neighbor about, hey, this is trending, isn't a vetted sample to your point. It's one in a very vast sea, but the internet has a, it sounds like a very, uh, I don't want to say democratized, but probably more efficient way of surfacing things that are validated and of interest to people.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, there are obviously extreme versions of this where there are companies that run satellites that look at, you know, migration patterns and all that. And so that is data, for example, that is not democratized, but there's still a lot of open space that is democratized that people just don't really know. Um, Again, they either don't know it exists or they know it exists and they don't know how to use it.
0: Yeah. Next topic I'd like to chat with you, Steph, is in your journey of trying these different things and you've sounds like you've traveled the world and been to many countries, talk to us. Cause I know our listeners would be keen to hear about this. And in, in the programs we offer here at Queens to support research partnerships and innovation, we're always talking about, um, networking and finding mentors that can help you that, you know, talk, a conversation with the right person for 30 minutes can save you six months of desk research, for example. So talk mm-hmm. to us about how that might've played a role in, in, your your career progression um, and I, I know uh, I actually came across you when you were on the My First Millions podcast and mm-hmm. you certainly have those two hosts uh, in your corner as champions so, so talk to us about the importance of networking mentorship and just having those people that are your champions that will help you uh, get to where you might want to go in your career.
1: Yeah so yeah I obviously Sam especially um, from My First Million and who founded The Hustle has been um, you know, I, I don't know if I r- think of him as a mentor, but it, he certainly has supported me throughout my career, um, and it's funny because we originally met through my writing. So I was writing these articles, and several of them had gone viral, and he had stumbled upon them, and I think by the, you know, second or third that he ran into, he just kind of DM'd me on Twitter and said, hey, well... Are you interested in working for The Hustle or building this thing called Trends? Um, but what's interesting about, yeah, the most influential mentors or people who have been, you know, just, uh, I guess, people who have really helped guide me in my career, um, like Sam, is that they've all come from um, jobs that I've had. And I the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think there's often this intuition for many people to be like, oh, there's this, you know, someone like Paul Graham. How inspiring! How do I get Paul Graham to be my mentor? Well, guess what? There's like millions of people who want Paul Graham to be their mentor, myself included, right? Like I would love to have you know one-on-one chats with him, but um, not only is it unlikely for someone like Paul to become a mentor of yours, he may not be the best mentor because he's never worked with you, right? He he doesn't have the fidelity or the information, um, and I think it's very easy for us to overlook the folks who do have that information, that experience. And I think another uh, related point is that a lot of people, I think, uh, will choose jobs because they're like, oh, this one pays slightly better. Or, um, you know, this just happens to be the job that's on my doorstep. And I do think um, there is this mentality that is lost on many people, which again, sounds simplistic, but it's really essential, which is every job that you take on There should be something that you're extremely excited about, not only to pursue, but also to learn. And if you can find that, which I certainly found at The Hustle, where I was given this opportunity to build trends and really build up a product from the ground up that I was excited about and that I had a unique skill set to do, because I could do that, the reason Sam is in my corner is because I helped him build a great product and we did it together and we had fun and he could see uh, my creativity and my skills and um, I could in the same way with him, and so I think the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think maybe if I've seen so many people who are like, yeah, I spent three years at this company, and they haven't really built a network there, and uh, they don't really have any mentors or, or people that they can lean on for their next you know stepping stone, and maybe that's uh, you know a a result or or a function of the fact that they joined a company that they weren't really able to like show the best side of themselves if that makes sense they weren't really able to grow into a position and by nature of growing into a position showing people what they're capable of so that they're capable of vouching for you and they're also excited about vouching for you because they've seen your own growth i don't know if that makes sense but i actually think that's like a very underrated uh calculus that people don't make when they're choosing jobs like my just to add one final thing to that my husband often says there's like, can't remember all of them, but when you join a job or you take on a new work, there's like five different salaries and the monetary salary is just one aspect of that. And there's many others, like your ability to be flexible, but also like, what are you going to learn in the role? Um, like I just mentioned.
0: Yeah, I think it's a hundred percent on points. Uh, we often hear students, you know, overhear discussions in the hallway that like, I got this offer, that offer, and it's focused on on the dollar amount, but boy, if you can find work that you find energizing every day, right? Where you get up and go to work and it doesn't seem like work because you're doing things that make, that satisfy your curiosity or you get to work with great people, that's gotta be a far better trajectory. And and ultimately probably financially, it could be in the long run, maybe not in the short term, but certainly in terms of, of, getting up every day and working on things that are interesting here at Queens I've got one of the best jobs in the world because I get to see new inventions and help support new companies every day it's, it's just amazing mm-hmm. but you know I can imagine others that say as you talked about earlier in the interview you know as my path working at a consulting firm for 35 years that didn't sound like that would get you up uh, every day and be energized and ready to take on the day it's also I want to touch on another topic you mentioned so the way you came across uh, Sampar as the, the, and the hustle, was you actually had your writing out online and yeah. I don't know, I guess that's, is that the power of SEO? Like just over time, people will come across your content and you're starting that interaction with probably something more in common or at least uh, shared philosophies. I don't know what it would be, but would you say that played a role? I mean, that almost seems like serendipity, but it's not if you've actually writing consistently and putting your thoughts out there and, and matching with like-minded individuals.
1: Yeah, so I should just quickly note that the articles that I wrote, um, while I have done a lot of work with SEO, I would say I always break down that with content, there's kind of like the content that, you know, people want and that's the SEO bucket because you can literally see it in the searches and the search volume that's out there. But then there's this other bucket where you just have this intuition. People may not you don't know that people want it because they're not searching for it, but you just have this inkling. That this is gonna resonate with people, that people are gonna share it. Um, My favorite example of this is there's one of the most upvoted posts on Hacker News of all time is from this guy, Peter. And it's, I think the title is, I Sell Onions on the Internet. And like, no one is searching for that, right? Billions of people on Earth, like, there's no one searching for, like, how do you sell onions on the internet? But He just, he had this inkling because he did sell onions on the internet that he had just this like fascinating story. And so I should say that most of the articles that did connect me to people like Sam were these inklings. Um, I do have written SEO driven content, but they were these ideas where I'm like, uh, I just feel like people need to hear this, whether it's a story or this lesson. Um, And coming back to your question about. You, know, you said, is it is it luck or is it something else? I just I do think that there is an underrated um, concept that if you do put yourself out there, whether it's through writing or videos or something else, then um, that content will work for you if it's good. If it really comes from a place where you're like, I have something to say, um, that content is almost like your brain being multiplied many, many times over. and while you're sleeping, if it's good, other people are sharing it for you. They're telling their friend about this article or this podcast they heard where you said this thing, um, and that's what my what those articles did, right? With Sam, and you know, Sam was one of many other people who ended up interfacing with that content. And to your point, because they've read this part of your brain that you've put on paper, when they actually approach you, it's not this cold outreach of "Hey, like this person told me to talk to you." It's like, oh, I feel like I already know you. And you said you listen to My First Million. Like when people meet Sam and Sean, they feel like they truly know them because they've had them in their ear for an hour each episode. And they've listened to dozens of episodes. And so they probably do know them pretty well. In fact, I heard uh, a Tim Ferriss was on this show um, recently with Colin and Samir. And they were like, it's actually interesting when you think about it. The people who listen to Tim Ferriss spend more time with Tim Ferriss. It's a parasocial relationship, but they spend more time with Tim Ferriss than probably all their best friends and their family, right? Like in terms of the actual hours that he spent with Tim versus any other person. And so I do think that That is where you get the most interesting opportunities and also the most interesting relationships that develop over time because you can almost imagine I said it's like putting your brain on a piece of paper, but it's also like duplicating a piece of your brain into a magnet that over time will attract certain magnets or vet other people for you um, and they're simultaneously kind of vetting on their side as well. And I guess the final thing I'll say there, use the term serendipity. Um, This guy, David Perel, actually, I think, I don't know if he coined it or uh, heard it from someone else, but he says writing is like increasing your surface area for serendipity. So it's still, there's still luck involved. You know, it's not going to do all the work for you. um, But imagine that if you're like a small little cube, like one centimeter squared to start, as you write. Imagine just building that up into like this larger igloo that over time you just have a just much greater area um, or surface area of serendipity. And, And over time, it does become almost, to your point, like you're increasing your luck so much that it becomes inevitable.
0: Yeah, fascinating story. And thank you for differentiating the thought of putting your thoughts on paper and just leaving them out there versus the SEO, which is a different bucket I'd gotten those two. Uh, conflated things no no for, no, no. For i I think out. it's
1: it's important to uh to note that they also don't have yeah. to be completely separate. um you can do both as well,
0: yeah, 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 fair enough um, so steph I would wouldn't mind just chatting about a couple of things I've seen you do on your your current hosting job uh, it sounds like you get to do some pretty fun uh, fun things I've seen in your Twitter feed, you've talked to physicists and uh, you seem to be diving in, you just did a, a segment or a, a podcast on self-driving and things like that. Can you give us a couple of examples of the kind of things that you're gonna be tackling or that you've done recently, just to give our audience a flavor, the kind of fun things you get to uh, cover as part of your your current job at Idrisen Horowitz?
1: Yeah, yeah, so our goal with the A16Z podcast is just to cover the most interesting topics and founders uh, within technology and to really showcase what they're building. Um, and if we're doing our job right, then people should be a little surprised, kind of like my work at Trends, where they're like, oh, I'm, I I kind of knew that AI was a thing, but I didn't realize these were the most important aspects of it, or I kind of knew self-driving was on the horizon, but I thought it was 10 years away, not two. Um, so those are some examples. And um, lately, yeah, just to name a few of the things that we've, we've released, as you said, I got to, this was probably my favorite project so far in the year I've been there, I got to ride in a waymo with their chief product officer. and that was my first time in a self-driving car and um, I actually didn't learn to drive until around a year ago. I just kept putting it off. And so for me it was like, oh my gosh, how cool is it that this technology is here? Um, especially because I, I, I don't know if you think the same way, but most people, it feels like have forgotten about it, right? There was all this hype maybe like five, ten years ago, and now that it's finally here to a degree, it's like, you know, crickets, like no one, no one's talking about it.
0: Yeah, I, I had forgotten to, until I, I started following some of your recent stories on it that there are autonomous cars driving around in certain parts of the U.S. So, yeah, it is. So, is it a bit surreal sitting in a car without a driver? Like, it's got first time. It's got to be a bit of a an odd experience.
1: You know, the first few seconds you are kind of like, wow, it's amazing that this wheel is turning by itself. But... I've now taken probably like a dozen friends in, in these cars now and it's amazing that with all of them they very quickly forget and I think that's a a result of us having Ubers and Lyfts and ride sharing for a while because we are kind of used to being driven around and you kind of just forget that instead of a human sitting in the front there's just you know software running that that computation. Um, so yeah it's, it's exciting that that's coming around um but we're covering all types of stuff like you mentioned got to talk to a nobel prize as winning astrophysicist recently at um the ideas festival we're covering all types of topics like critical materials like going into batteries how do we upgrade the grid um lots in bio biotech i think that's obviously a, a an emerging space um that is getting a lot of traction especially with um some of the advancements in ai Um, We recently did a series on AI hardware um, because there's this large GPU shortage um, that matters to what feels like just about every tech company as every tech company is trying to integrate AI in some way. Um, We are doing episodes, gosh, on on like the future of jobs, like with the AI wave that's happening right now, what happens? There's a lot of fear, but I think there's actually, you know, in, in the past when technology has reshaped the job market, new jobs have appeared. And I think that'll be the case now as well. And so kind of showcasing what are some of the new opportunities um, that people should be learning, whether they're in college or otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, those are, you know, just a, a handful of the things that we're covering. But um, again, it's just really like if, if there's something interesting in technology um, that really matters to the wider world, that then we're hoping to cover it.
0: Fascinating. Amazing to to see those kind of trends up close and personal uh, in real time, that's 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 awesome. Uh, Steph, you've been very generous with your time. I wonder if I could ask you one last question. Sure. Uh, so, Queen's University is in Kingston, Ontario. It's a now a mm-hmm. university town of 140,000 people, uh, pretty close to your number of Twitter followers, which is kind of a mi- mind-boggling thing to think about anyways in some <laughs> that sense. That is but, mind-boggling. Uh, we're, yeah. we're in Canada, and the population of Canada is much smaller than the U.S., and I know you're, you've moved your career down to the U.S., could you give us any compare and contrast to innovation pathways that you've seen from where you sit as a creator or a writer uh, or a keynote speaker or, or any of the, the hats you've been wearing uh, to compare and contrast the difference between the US and Canada, I guess with an eye towards things that we could be doing in Canada that could make Canada more like places like Silicon Valley or Austin, Texas, or, or some of the biotech hubs in San Francisco or Boston?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I still love Canada and I'm so I, I still feel very well, I am Canadian <laughs> at heart um, and I am excited and, and delighted really to see some of the what feels like advancements in tech happening in Toronto. I think there are some um, pretty significant AI firms that have opened up offices there and um, some founders coming from there as well. And so I think maybe something that I've noticed, especially moving to San Francisco recently, um, and of course, there's some internal uh, debates even within the city. But I think what I I find very exhilarating is is just getting to see um, kind of like the fringes of technology and and truly being optimistic about that. Like I I wish more people, not just within Canada but around the world, would just kind of revel in the progress. Like that that is. To me, it is so incredible what the you know many people around the world are working towards, and to also just look back at like the progress we've made since I graduated college. Like you know, it how long has it been? Eight years ago. It's amazing. Like, shouldn't we be excited that there are self-driving cars on the road? Shouldn't we be excited that we're making complete unlocks and like protein folding and and that you know what that can potentially lead to in terms of health outcomes? Like. This stuff is amazing, and I just wish... Um, it, it, this is not maybe a Canada-specific thing, but I wish more people who are maybe a little tech apprehensive, even though that they have perhaps good reason to want to be careful, would just at least like embrace that There's just there are things to be excited about. And that's also maybe some of the optimism, some of the excitement that we hope to bring with the A16Z podcast. Um, but I think it's... Um, one of the reasons you end up with some of these tech hubs like San Francisco is that it does rub off on people, right? Like that energy yep. is intoxicating. And I, I just wish we could share that you know, with more people, which is again, in a way, what we're trying to do with content.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree, Steph. We're editing genes that may eradicate disease. Yeah. We're sending rockets deep into space that can come back and land and be reused like almost a commercial exactly. airliner. It's just uh, an amazing time to, to be around. Uh, Steph, wanted to thank you again so much for taking the time to chat with us. I, I suspect our listeners are going to be uh, very interested to hear your story. And if you're ever back in Canada, please let us know if you stop on <laughs> campus. We'd love to uh, yeah, I would love have you to drop come in for a
1: sometime. visit. Yeah, I would love that.